This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony. Can I, can I say this maybe right at the start? I'm just thinking of this. Your, your pastor knows doctrine. Our pastor knows doctrine really, really well. He knows his Bible. But if I have a choice between um, going to a church where they know their Bible really well, but don't live it out and don't love the world like they're commanded to and fulfill the Great Commission, and somebody who maybe doesn't know it as well, but is actually obeying the commands of Jesus, I would, I would take the second one, um, as long as you know, there weren't any really severe doctrinal divergences there. But y- your pastor has both. And so that's why I I love this church so much. That's why um, I love you all so much. Our our commitment is to the things that the word of God says should be an absolute number one priority in our lives. And so, and uh, as long as I'm here, as long as pastor's here, I know we're going to continue on with that. So I appreciate you as well. Um, Learned a lot from your pastor. Uh, What we're going to do tonight here, I have, uh, you notice the title of your notes uh, five Principles for More Effective Bible Reading. This is not unique to me, although I have uh, done a lot of, or I, I didn't actually generate this material. I, I, I put a lot of some of my thoughts into it as well, but this is from William and Howard Hendricks, who have a, a book out called Living by the Book. It's one that I read in college and thought, that was really fantastic. I got a lot out of it, and it really helped me. So just wanted to share, uh, there's many, many more principles in this book, but I, I kind of settled on five, because to be honest, in a message, how many, how many things are people really going to take away from a message? You know, you give them 10 points or 12 points or whatever, you know, they're, they're going to remember one or two anyway. So we've got five here, but you got them in your notes. Notice that uh, what we'll do here is we'll look at the fill-in-the-blank parts, and then we'll get to the back, and we'll just do responsive reading. So I figure we will definitely be out of here by 7.30. So just, I'm just kidding. We're not, the, back is not, the back is not for a discussion tonight. What that is is just a supplement. Um, I thought I wanted to, to, to provide some additional materials for potential errors in interpreting scri- scripture. Areas where people have pitfalls, areas where, in fact, in some cases, even entire denominations have kind of gotten off track because of the way that they read the Bible is no longer in what we call the historical grammatical method, which is just, it means what it says. And so they've, they've tended to get off track. So there's a number of different things on there that might help you if you want to look through them but uh, I will not speak any more of them tonight. All right. I don't know if Pastor noticed this, but uh, let's set this down here. I, I don't know if I want to set this on the podium, but I brought a bag here with me. Like, really? What's going on here? Okay. So I'm going to just ask you guys a few things here. Uh, you ever seen one of these? You know what these are? Hammer. Hammer. That's correct. Which is kind of funny because if you were really in a pinch, no pun intended, if you're really in a pinch, I'm sorry, <laughs> this is what you're going to get. Um, you could kind of bang in a nail with this, right? I mean, you could, but that, that's not what it's for, though, right? These are pliers. Okay, good enough. You guys got it. How about uh, this one? It doesn't have the tip on it, but <laughs> hammer. This is a screwdriver. This is a special screwdriver because this has one of those ratcheting functions, so I, I, uh, I like it. You know what it's for, right? You probably wouldn't choose to use it as a hammer. You probably shouldn't choose to use it as a chisel. Nevertheless, some people might. Now, here, here, I've heard this one mentioned twice already. So here you go. 
Good for you. You, you, were, you, were, you were reading my mind in advance, I guess. So this is, this is an actual, this is a tiny hammer. This is not really useful for much of anything other than maybe pounding tiny little nails in to uh, get pictures done. But I, I keep it around just because it's cute. Um, <coughs> all right. Now, now we're getting a little bit more, a little bit more challenging. Some of you may not be as familiar with the next cup. I only have two more here. So anyone know what this is? This is a wire stripper. Yeah, so um, what this does, what, what the reason I love this thing is that rather than having all the different settings uh, for the different wire sizes, you just kind of make one slight adjustment and then any size wire you put in here, it'll crimp it, slice it on the, on the outer uh, 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 insulation and then just strip it right back for you and it leaves it, it leaves it separated. So it saves a lot of time if you've ever had to do wiring. I, I, I was debating whether or not to tell this story, but um, I, uh, I was going to do wiring in our house for a particular thing at one point, and uh, so I went out and bought some wire, some uh, electrician-type equipment to make it a little bit easier. And and uh, the reason I did this is that when I called an electrician, I said, well, how much would it be to do X, Y, and Z? And I was thinking in my mind, a few hundred bucks, you know, it's not really that much. It should only take them an hour or two. Like, it's like 1,200 bucks. I'm sorry if you're an electrician. I highly respect So I said, So I said to myself, 1,200 bucks. I didn't, I didn't let my shock be known on the, on the phone, but... Afterwards, I, I really went through this thought process in my mind. I said, I have pretty good life insurance. <laughs> so does my wife. If, if, if I try to do this wiring and I, you know, my, I meet my untimely demise, my wife will be pretty well taken care of. For 1,200 bucks, I think I can do this on my own. So anyway, separate story, sorry. Did I ever share that? Okay. <coughs> um, here's one more. You probably have no idea because it's really weird. It's really specialized. It's, it is a socket set for an removing an O2 sensor from certain makes of vehicles. That's part of the exhaust system. It tells you whether or not your engine is functioning properly. Um, not, a, not a normal tool, right? Oh, it's, what's that? Steve, <laughs> catalytic converters. Ooh, she knows what that is. That's a good one. But I only take the platinum, I don't take the rest. <laughs> All right. <coughs> uh, so j just a few different items here. What are they? They're all tools. Do you absolutely need the right tool or a tool that's designed for a specific purpose to accomplish a task? Sometimes you do that. O2 sensor, I can tell you, it'd be just about impossible to get out of your vehicle and change it out if you didn't have the right angles and all this. But you don't need them, but what do tools do for you? They make the job easier, and you can accomplish more in the same amount of time or more maybe even in less time, right? They enhance your work. They make you more efficient. And so what these are, what I'm going to give you tonight is just five tools. There's many other tools, but these are the five that I boiled down. I said, I think these would be the most helpful tools that just about any Christian should have in their toolkit when they come to reading the Bible. Now, are you going to pull out all five every time? be a little bit, I mean, it might be a little bit busy. If you do, kudos to you, because <laughs> it's great. But if you even just take a few uh, once in a while here or there and you, you apply them and you use them, I think I do feel like you'll get more out of your Bible reading. So um, moving on into the, the material, you're going to have to have your Bibles ready because we're going to look at some passages of Scripture. I'm going to read them. And uh, <clears throat> it's not an expositional message. This is a topical message. Normally in our church, we preach expositionally, which means we just go right through the Word of God and evaluate it in its context. 
In this case, we're looking at some topics. So we are going to read scripture because we always do in church, but when we preach, but we're going to um, jump back and forth some different passages in scripture. So Isaiah 55 is the first, pa- first passage we want to go to tonight. Isaiah 55. Before I read this, though, can I just, I just want to say a pr- quick prayer uh, as we read together the word of God. And it moves in our hearts and minds. So, Father, thank you for this time. Please bless the word as it is opened and read. Lord, the spirit must move. We know that, not me. Help me to re- remove myself from the way and that we can learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Main point number one. So tool number one, if you want to call it this way. And you notice the way I have your notes, so just say this really quick. I'm going to have the title for, the, for the, the tool, but then down below there's a couple blank lines. That's just to, uh, a little bit additional notes if you want to jot some things in. But number one is read the Bible as a love letter. Read the Bible as a love letter. And we're going to look at Isaiah 55 to to think a little bit about these principles. So Isaiah 55, just follow with me as I read through the whole passage. It's not terribly long. It's about, I think, 13 verses. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buy things without price, without money? Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. I'm going to pause there for just a second. What was the nation of Israel's responsibility? It wasn't simply God saved them so that he could be a special, they could be a special people to him. What you see come out in the scriptures is that God saved them so that they would be a light to the world around them. And this is the same thing is true with you and I today. We are not saved just so we get a you know, get out of jail free, free card, get, a, get out of hell free ticket, and, and then we just kind of go on living our way through the rest of our lives until we pass away. God saved us so that we could become his servants and so that we could witness the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. (coughs) Verse six, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please." and it shall prosper into the thing whereto I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace, and the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. 
Real quick context, so I'll actually mention context later, but for now, Isaiah's writing during a period of severe spiritual decline in Israel. The problem is God gave the law through Moses. God gave King David and King Solomon. But there's, there's some real problems going on in the nation of Israel. They have been stepping away from, from the path. They haven't been obeying the Lord. Since the days of Solomon, really, in particular, maybe you could even argue the days of David, kingdom was on a conti- the kingdom was on a continued uh, sort of downward spiral spiritually, which would eventually result in the, the destruction and the enslavement of all 12 tribes, first the northern 10, then the southern 2. And so Assyria destroyed the north, Babylon destroys the south. Um, God warns them. This is pretty much the whole message of the prophets. God is warning his people over and over again, don't forget the covenant I made with you. Remember, I promised you double blessings, but what else did you promise? He promised double cursings if they would disobey his law. So God is imploring them over and over again throughout the prophets. Um, However, throughout the prophets, you also have God's goodness and love that comes through over and over again in what they're telling the people. God has a deep desire for his people to be in a right relationship with him. He's not happy when they stray. He's not happy when they fall away. So he implores the people over and over again for a period of about 500 years to come back, to forsake their wicked ways and come back to him. So as we think about Isaiah 55, and that's, that's the context here, right? This is sort of in the middle of that spiritual decline, roughly. Um, thinking about a few questions as you read this passage, and, and by the way, uh, asking questions is a very, very important part of growing, of understanding more. Ask questions. Do this consistently in your reading. Um, if you don't ask questions, you're not going to get below the surface stuff. So ask questions, uh, or else you, you're going to miss a lot of really important things that God will have you in his word, for, in, for you in his word. So question number one, I, just a couple questions here of, the, of this type. What does this passage tell you about what God is like? You think, and you, you can feel free to, to respond, um, but what does it tell you about what he's like? What's the whole tenor of the passage? I, I'm, I'm imploring you to keep the commands that I've given you. Remember who I am. I'm the one that's given you every good thing. I protect you. I, I bring forth rain and snow, and I, I do all this for you. And, and God really does it for everybody as well, right? But there's, Israel has a special place in his, in his, in his heart, so to speak. And so what do you see? You see God here as somebody who longs, right, to be in a deep, close relationship with his people. Question number two, those of you who are parents, how can you better relate to what God is like, knowing what it's like to train your own children? You ever have those moments as a parent, those of you that have, are, are parents where you, you've trained them, you've taught them, you want them to do things a certain way and then doesn't always work out, right? And so what do you do? I mean, you can punish, but ultimately, what's really in your heart? What's in your heart is not punishment. It's not anger. It's, I, I just want my child to do the right thing. I just want them to learn to love and, and obey and serve God and to love and, obey, uh, love and serve others. For those without children, think about what it's like to try to help or instruct those family members or those loved ones who just don't want to do the right thing, right? Y- you all know. You, you've all given lectures. We've all had speeches. We've all had discussions, and sometimes it just feels like you don't get anywhere. Think about how God feels <laughs> when he gives us information and instruction in his word. He says, please, please, and he implores us. Now, God is not injured when we disobey, but 
he's certainly not happy or enjoy the fact that his people go off from the path they stray. So make no mistake, God is deeply offended by our sin. It does make him angry. <clears throat> but he also loves us enough to tell us what offends him so that we can make it right and to tell us when he's offended. Um, he wants us to make choices that lead to fulfillment and joy. So listen carefully. Think about this. Read the Bible not so much as a list of do's and don'ts, right? This is how I think many people in the world see the Bible. It's a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. But w what is it really? Um, the Bible is a loving father who truly wants his people to experience the joy and the fulfillment that comes with being in a right relationship with him so that he can just bring down blessings upon them. That's what he really wants. Uh, and so that's, that's a very different picture, right? It's not uh, the sort of the image of Zeus up in, uh, uh, up in the stratosphere, ca ready to cast lightning bolts on anyone who, who doesn't do the right thing. It's a father saying, please, I'm, I'm imploring you, don't do this. Don't go this route. And remember to do these things if you want to have a healthy, happy life um, and you want to be in a right relationship with me. So read the Bible as a love letter. That was number one. Number two, let's continue on. Read thoughtfully. <coughs> And for this passage, I want to look uh, over to Genesis chapter 5. So get ready there. We'll read it in just a few moments. But Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. Even if you've read a passage many times, go into your Bible reading with a discovery mindset. There's always something that, that could be there that you have not seen before. And anyone who's read their Bible many times knows that in some ways it's almost like the more intentionally you read later on after you've read it a bunch of times, the more you begin to, to pull out of it in some ways. But we have to go into each reading session with a discovery mindset. We're going in as a detective, for example, who would look for clues trying to put things together. Uh, this requires us to be in the moment. That is mentally present while you read. Again, you've all had the experience of being mentally absent while you read anything, but the Bible's no different. We can get that way as well. Usually happens when you are doing some task that is muscle memory. For most of us, driving is this way, right? You're not really paying attention to what's going on. You just, your body turns at the right corner and you just, you're not even really thinking about what you're doing. It's muscle memory. Reading the Bible can become almost like muscle memory. It can. <coughs> um, sometimes it happens when other people are trying to talk to us. So I, I know this as a fact. I, I, I've, I've heard pastor tell me that this is true, that husbands don't always listen. No, I'm just kidding. So I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience. Husbands don't always listen well to their wives, right? Now, it's true that anybody can have this happen, but I'm just going to throw myself in the limelight for a moment. Um, we can listen to our wives lay out a plan or talk about something on, on their hearts and not in all the right places. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are you hearing me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You were talking about X, Y, Z. <laughs> but uh, we're not really in the moment. Later on, we have no idea what our wife really said or what our kids said or maybe even what our boss said or what a friend said. So reading the Bible can become this way. So how do you, how do you, you, know, how do you avoid that? Make sure that doesn't happen. Um, you have to read with a discovery mindset. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 5. This is going to seem like a strange passage to look at, but Genesis 5.21. Um, Genesis 5, those of you that know when we got here, it's sort of, kind of stuck in the middle of some other things. It's just like genealogies. Okay, so Genesis 5.21, And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, 
for God took him. By the way, the first example, as far as we know, of a rapture in the Bible. Um, and Methuselah lived 180 and seven years and begot Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begot Lamech 780 and two years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years and he died. So who's the oldest person in the Bible recorded? Methuselah, 969. Adam was close, but Adam, I think, was 962 or 961. It was, it's a few years short. But I mean, hey, what's seven years among, you know, millennial, m literal millennials, right? Um, <laughs> they, were the, they were the original millennials. <coughs> so it goes on, um, verse 28, And Lamech lived in 180 and two years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begot Noah 590 and five years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years. And he died. And Noah was 500 years old and begot. Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Methuselah, again, I already mentioned, famous for being the oldest known person in, mentioned directly in the Bible. Uh, 969 years is a really long time. Have you ever actually stopped and thought about what kinds of things you could accomplish if you live to be a millennia old, what, how much could you learn? By the way, you can kind of take that in the negative, from the negative perspective, how much sin could you uh, practice in that amount of time? But, but we're gonna focus on the positive here. So um, imagine how much you can learn, how much you could experience. If you were a follower of God, how, many, how much time would you have to uh, develop that faith and grow in your relationship with him or potentially waste it, right? Um, but was Methuselah a godly man? It's an interesting question. Uh, I'm going I'm to try to avoid delving into like questionable matters here, but I just asked the question, was Methuselah a godly man? How old was Methuselah when Lamech was born? The text says it directly in that passage. Did anyone, did anyone catch it? How old was Methuselah when Lamech was born? 187. How old was Lamech when Noah was born? 182. How old was Noah when the flood came? 600. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Somebody actually raised their hand. Wow, this is, this is great for you. I'm sorry, I missed you. <laughs> um, 600. So if we do a little bit of quick math, we find that Methuselah was, guess how old when the flood came on the earth? 969 years old. This means that Methuselah actually died the same year as the flood. Did Methuselah die in the flood? Well, he was pretty old. I mean, there's no way to know that. Um, and and I'm, not, I'm not really going to take this and like try to delve any further with it or try to make some kind of deep spiritual application. I'm just pointing out this. Methuselah, if you do, if you were to actually look at a passage like this that initially just seems like, meh, <laughs> just a bunch of ages, um, and, and you start putting some numbers together, you'd see that Methuselah died in the very same year. So this is uh, the year that the flood came. We don't know. Did he die in the flood? Did he, did he uh, die just before the flood? But just a careful reading of the scriptures can kind of bring out some unusual and, and interesting nuggets and tidbits that can help you just to add some spice to your, to your Bible reading. Uh, it's always good to, to learn new things. So uh, that was, uh, one more time, just the idea of, <coughs> excuse me, uh, reading thoughtfully. Just pay attention. Look for the details. Delve on them a little bit. Um, 
Let's continue on to number three, read prayerfully. Now, the passage I have here is Jonah 2, and I'm actually going to read part of another passage. But Jonah 2, I'm going to flip over there real quick, and uh, I think we can take the time to read. You, you of course, know the story of Jonah. There's not too many uh, chapters in the book. Okay, took me a while to get there. Jonah chapter 2. Let's read it. This is not not terribly long. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. You know where he's been, right? He's been in the belly of this sea creature for three days and three nights. For thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Um, He's in this sea creature, but he's not stationary. The sea creature's moving around, and you can imagine this. He's just jostling all over the place, back and forth, in this pitch darkness. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward, toward thy holy temple, The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple, that they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Um, Since it is the Holy Spirit that God gives to each believer that helps us understand Scripture, it is absolutely indispensable that we have open channels of communication with him. The Bible says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. In other words, it is the Spirit of God that reveals to, them, reveals to us the importance and the truth of them. So without having a, vi- a vital and vibrant connection to the Spirit of God in your life, a, a Bible reading is just knowledge. It's just knowledge of stuff. If the Spirit reveals to us the deep things of God, according to 1 Corinthians 2.10, and that was the the passage I just referenced, then without communication between ourselves and the Spirit, we simply won't grasp what we should be grasping. We won't have the things in in, in our reading and in our meditation that God really wants for our lives. So, very important. Um, One more passage. I'm going to go to Daniel chapter 9 real quick. And I spent a little bit of time on this prayer one. Daniel chapter 9, just a few pages back in your Bible, most likely. <clears throat> I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's a little bit longer chapter. But in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, now, Jeremiah's long passed on now at this point, um, but Daniel's reading from the scrolls that had been copied. 
I understood by the word of the, which the, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So listen very carefully. There's a little bit of a pattern here in chapter 9. Daniel is reading, are you ready for this? The word of God. Daniel is reading the word of God and it brings him to a realization of something that he had never understood before. How long are we supposed to be in captivity? Well, the prophet Jeremiah said this very clearly, 70 years. And so he does a little math, right? And he goes, wait a minute. We're like, and as I, I believe as he writes this, we're like in the 69th year, something like that. It's about time. So it's a big deal to him. And I set my face, notice verse three though. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. I'm not going to read on, but I want to read just the first part of verse 5. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Now, I, I pause real, right there real quick. Was Daniel probably the greatest sinner among the nation of Israel? Probably not. I mean, we know Daniel wasn't perfect, but it was certainly the sins of his fathers that led, and his, so his ancestors, that led to Israel being exiled, not his own. Yet when he comes before the Lord in this prayer, he just pours it out and says, we've done this. I am part of your people. I am one of your people and, and we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. And then he goes on to beg for God's forgiveness and for God's restoration for his people, right? And skipping on ahead uh, in Daniel chapter nine, looking at uh, verse 21. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. And what comes next, I'm going to shorten this up a little bit, what comes next is one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament about the tribulation period. It gives Israel some really key information about what's going to happen with Antichrist, with the second coming of Jesus, and so on and so forth. And so I, I just point this out to say, look, don't, don't misunderstand. If you fall on your face before God, God is not necessarily going to send you a prophecy. That, that's not the point. But what God does do is for those that fall on their face and humbly cry out to him for wisdom, for insight, for forgiveness, God reveals things to them that make a huge difference. So we must come to the Lord, spirit of humility, spirit of prayer, because it is the spirit of God that reveals to us the deeper things of God. So we cannot understand them on our own. Very, very important. Um, so one, one other thought here. Pray before you read, pray while you read, and pray after you read. Pray for the illumination to understand what it means. Pray to understand how it applies to you. Pray for the strength to actually apply it. Right? Because it's not, how many times have you gone to church and you've gone and listened to a message and you know exactly what you're supposed to do, then you don't do it. Pray for the strength to actually apply it. Pray that it would help you better glorify God and serve others. Gaining theological knowledge is good, but it's only a start. Going away from your reading a changed person and making a different, having it make a difference in how you live your life is the goal. Being conformed to the image of Christ is what it's all about. So gain the knowledge, gain the knowledge through reading and study. 
but you also have to pray that the Lord gives you the strength and encouragement to go on and, and live the way he has commanded us to actually live. Point number four, reading imaginatively or reading with imagination, if you would prefer. John chapter two, verses one through 11. So flipping over there. <clears throat> reading imaginatively. Now, when I, when I thought about this, I really love that, that the Hendricks included this in here because it maybe is one you don't tend to think about as much. But who's really good at using imagination? Kids. Kids are really good at, at, at using imagination. So there are many games that Anya and Zane, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of call them out here because this is just cracks me up every time I think about it. There are many games that Zane and Anya like to play together, but one of the funniest to watch them, them engage in is Beat Bobby Flay. So I don't know if you're familiar with the cooking channel, like Beat Bobby Flay, kind of a big deal on the cooking channel. Um, so here's what happens. I'll make them macaroni and cheese, or I make them some kind of dinner, maybe if it's a busy night, mac and cheese. But I'll put the dishes in front of them. So I'll set them down. Here you guys go, and, and then you'll pray. And then Anya will proceed to say, okay, let's try the first dish. <laughs> Zane, what did you think about the cheese sauce? And then Zane will just jump right back in, because they know how this game is played, right? Zane will say something like, well, I enjoyed the saltiness of it, but I could have used a little more cheese sauce. It just didn't have enough. And so there's always like, right, there's always like a positive thing and then a critique, right? And that's just the way Bobby Flay usually works. So they'll, they'll go back and forth like this for about 10 minutes, just, just making, making a game out of the meal and having so much fun with it out of what is mac and cheese. I mean, let's be honest, it's not all that special. But it's fun when you use your imagination and you enjoy things that you're doing. Um, somewhere along the way, we as adults get so busy with life. There's so many stressful things. There's so much work to be done. There's so much, I don't know, just the difficulties that come along with being an adult that we forget to come to the Bible take ourselves out of the world for a moment and put ourselves in the shoes of the people we're reading about and say, what would this have been like? Reading with imagination. So Hendricks comments on this particular principle. If we always read scripture in the same way and in the same place, time after time, we run the risk of making it into a routine exercise with little interest or excitement. What a tragedy, especially when we consider that history's greatest works of art and music have been created by people who learned to read the Bible imaginatively. Think about that. Some of the greatest art pieces, uh, paintings, and the greatest music, and so much of the great culture of the world came as a result of people who read the Bible and said, I want to make something that's in that image, so to speak. I, I want to make a picture like that because, and now, I... <laughs> We, you could go back and talk a little bit about how art has changed over the years, but they wanted to produce something because they genuinely believed that what God had created was the highest form of creativity and art, and their job was to just make a copy of it as best they could, and that was their way of kind of glorifying God. It's interesting to think about it that way. But when we come back to Scripture, we have to read with imagination, put ourselves in the shoes of the people and try to understand what's going on. So John chapter two, verse one. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus, and, and, sorry, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? 
mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set, and there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece, um, basically about 40 to 50 gallons. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then keep then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed in it. So a couple questions to think about as you think about this passage. Put yourselves in the shoes of the groom, the bride, or their parents. How would you feel if you ran out of a very important part of a feast? Um, now, just to mention really quickly, it's clear here that this would have been, the best wine would have been considered uh, the pure wine, the, the grape juice. So this would have been grape juice, undoubtedly. But um, that's how the ancients always considered the best wines to be the pure wines. But if you ran out of this very important drink at the most critical time of the festival, would you, would you have been embarrassed to toast water? Like, hey guys, sorry, we're out of, we're out of this necessary item. It's, it's okay, it's water. We'll, we'll just go with water for now. Question number two, although embarrassing, it's not exactly like anyone would have died without having more grape juice, right? So it's not like it was an end-of-the-world scenario. What does this say about Jesus' concern for us, even in the small things? And then question number three, what do you think went through the bride and groom's minds as a new bunch of juice just appeared from nowhere, or even the, uh, the parents, right? We're, we're, should we be drinking this? I don't know where this came from. It's not, it's not mine. I didn't, I didn't buy this. Have you ever received a similar blessing from God just out of the blue? Just God just poured something into your life and said, here you go. Why? It's because I love you. So those kinds of things are questions. Think, think about the individuals in a passage, the events that are happening. Ask yourself questions. Think about how you would have responded under given circumstances. By the way, real quick side note, thinking about how you might have responded in circumstances uh, with a degree of humility helps you realize that you, you can go back to Thomas, you can go back to Adam and say, well, if I had been there, things would have been different, right? Mm, not so. Putting yourself in, in, the, in the situations in the Bible helps you understand and relate. Um, approaching your Bible reading this way will add some z serious zest to your sessions. So just read imaginatively. And uh, that was number four. Number five, let's continue on. Read the Bible contextually. Now, I have this last, but perhaps in some ways, this is maybe one of the most important. Um, I think reading the Bible as a love letter is obviously critically important as well, because that's truly what it is. But reading the Bible contextually, because this prevents us from falling into many errors, it's very valuable. I'm not saying all your Bible reading has to be done this way, but it's very valuable to read larger chunks of the Bible at once from time to time. This helps you better see the connections throughout the Bible, um, while this may not be as necessary, maybe in, in, say, books like Proverbs or Psalms, it's actually really important in some of the narrative portions of Scripture, right, where a longer series of events is being described. 
Consider the following short passage as an example of how we might possibly break down the scriptures into too small a part and end up missing something really important. So turn to Matthew chapter 18. <coughs> Matthew chapter 18. Um, and I'm going to pick up here in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So we see the sequence of events, a, a literal process here that you're supposed to follow if somebody is caught in some kind of sin in the church and, and it's, it's damaging them, it's damaging the church, and we know about it. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So verse 20 is often used to reference the fact that Jesus comes and, and is among us when we meet together for church time or for small group prayers or whatever, right? And, and this is a good thought. Like, I like this thought. It's a neat thought, but it's not really in the context of what the passage is talking about. Sometimes people use it, for example, to excuse themselves from being a member of a legitimate church body. They might say, well, you know, I don't have to be a part of a church. I can just meet together with my friends. We can go out surfing together and we can have a word of prayer and, and you know, the Lord is with us, right? So that means the Lord approves of what I'm doing. Uh, it's, it's very easy to convince yourself of anything you want to believe <laughs> if you just give yourself enough rope, enough time. Um, now, it is true that Jesus is with us everywhere because as God, he's omnipresent, correct? Is there anywhere that Jesus cannot be? No. There are other passages such as Matthew 28, 20, which tell us he is everywhere present. But this passage is actually talking about church discipline. Notice uh, verse 16, if confronting a sinning brother alone is ineffective, take another or two. The principle goes back to the law of Moses, which taught that it is required that two or three witnesses established any legal matter. There had to be witnesses. There had to be some agreement. So Jesus teaches the same principle here. Two or three witnesses shall establish a matter of church discipline. Okay, so if two or three are, are, are agreed together, then the, the Lord puts his stamp of approval, so to speak, on their, what they have, have agreed to do as a body. If we conduct matters this way, Jesus' approval is given to the ruling. Church discipline, by the way, of course, is an incredibly important tool, since we're talking about tools, right? Given to the church body to maintain its godly testimony and to restore and repair things which have become seriously broken. So that is what's really meant by verse 20. It is true that Jesus is with us at all times, and that's a very comforting thought. But in the context, the Lord puts his approval on a church when it's conducting church discipline in the right way, the way that God has commanded it to be done. So that's important just to understand. Now, when you, when you understand that, it actually 
I'm not taking back anything about Jesus being all present. We're actually enhancing our understanding of church discipline. So that's an important aspect of reading contextually. You will pull more of what God wants you to understand out of the Bible. So final, final thought here. Oh, actually, by the way, I, I did have, I did jot one other note here I wanted to just mention briefly. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That is one of the most manipulated <laughs> and ruined verses in the entire Bible. Um, because if you just take that verse and you pull it out of context, then you can just pray over something and God is bound to, 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 to do whatever you say. But that's not at all what it means. It's saying that when you do things God's way, in the matter, in the course of church discipline, of course, the Lord will, I in essence, it, and there's, there's some contextual things with the language even, it will have already been bound in heaven. So even the language clarifies that, but misinterpreted by entire denominations and used for their own benefits rather than what God actually wants us to know. Final thought. A believer should never really go away from a reading session in the Bible unsure of what God wants him or her to do. Correct? If you, if, you, if you spent five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 or even 30 in Bible reading, that's great. It's good to spend time in God's word. But if you leave that reading session having no, not having thought about or not having any idea what, what God wants you to change, then have you really accomplished what you're supposed to be doing? If you accomplish the purpose of reading the Bible, remember, the purpose of reading a Bible is not, the goal of reading the Bible is not to have read the Bible. The goal of reading the Bible is to produce biblical change to, towards Christ-likeness. So James 1.22, which we've been, uh, that, when I put together this message a while ago, you know, we, obviously we didn't know pastor would be preaching on, on this passage at this time, but James 1.22 says one of the most important applicational principles in the entire Bible. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Jesus also said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is so important. Is there, is there another way to demonstrate your love for God? I mean, God's given us the commands in his word. How do we demonstrate that we truly have the spirit within? How do we demonstrate that we truly are God's children? By keeping his commandments and by loving one another. And loving one another is one of his commandments, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. The true hallmark of a proper reading of scripture is a change in behavior to become more like Christ. I tell my classes at school, I, I, I always tell my young people this every year because I actually teach out of the book of James uh, in, in my own practical Christianity course. And I, I, I say this, and maybe it's a little bit overbaked, but you get, the, uh, you get the idea. I would rather you read one verse of scripture per day and actually make positive change than to read a thousand and never do anything differently. It doesn't get, it doesn't get below the surface. It doesn't make a difference. I'd rather you read one and say, I'm going to do this all day. And I'm, I'm going I'm to pray about it. I'm going to trust the Lord to help me as I try to obey this one command that God has given me. But it's better to do both. It's better to read, read consistently, read frequently, read, read a lot of God's word, and go away from it obeying and following what God has said to do. So I hope these things have been an encouragement to you.
Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.